Senator Risch, currently serving as Idaho's 28th senator, holds a long-standing commitment to public service and passion for good government. Senator Risch was elected to the United States Senate in November of 2008 after he has served as the Idaho Senator, Lieutenant Governor, and the Governor, and he was named to five Senate committees, including the Energy and Natural Resources Committee, which gives Idaho a continued voice in the legislation that shapes the West. Um, his other committee assignments include uh, foreign relations, and he's select committee on, on intelligence, he's select committee on ethics, and joint economic committee. So quite a few very, very important committees. As a twice-elected lieutenant governor, Risch earned a reputation as an advocate for smart economic development. He continues to work with businesses, new and old alike, to ensure continued prosperity to the people and places of Idaho. Senator Risch received a Bachelor's of Science degree in Forestry from the University of Idaho and a Juris Doctorate degree from the University of Idaho College of Law. Go Vandals, I had to make sure that was in there. <laughs> he served on law review at the College of Law Advisory Committee at the University of Idaho and has taught criminal law at Boise State University. Very, very diverse background. He was a small business owner, a rancher, farmer, and senior partner in the Risch Goss Insinger Gustaval Law Firm. That's a name. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, at the time of his election in the U.S. Senate. Senator Risch and his wife Vicki have been married for 39 years. They have three sons, two daughters-in-law, six grandchildren, and their commitment to Idaho and their work together earned them in the distinction uh, of being selected as Idaho's Healthy Marriage Ambassadors, which I thought was fantastic. They live on a ranch outside of Boise and maintain an apartment in Washington, D.C. Please welcome Senator Risch. Thank you. Thank you. Excuse me. Thank you very much. I had to bring water up here. I've caught up. I'm not sick. I've just got a coffee in Washington, D.C. I think they, diseases come from everywhere there. So uh, uh, they need to update my bio. Vicki and I have actually been married 42 years. And uh, so uh, she would want me to point that out if, uh, if she were here. Well, thank you so much. First of all, thank you so much for the incredible opportunity to represent you in the United States Senate. As you know, uh, every state has uh, two, two votes in the Senate. Uh, I, I couldn't be more fortunate than to have a partner uh, like Mike Crapo. Uh, you'll find that our voting record is virtually identical. Uh, we don't do anything uh, of substance without talking with each other about it and bouncing the ideas off each other. And uh, uh, we're generally able to uh, resolve the, any disagreement we may have on where we ought to go with the issue. And uh, Mike's just a, a fabulous person. I, when he came to the state senate, I'd been there 10 years. When I came to the United States Senate, he'd been there 10 years. So uh, uh, we've, we've been friends for a long, long time, and it's just great to have a partner uh, uh, like Mike. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to talk just a little bit about my transition from state government to the federal government. And then um, I'm going to, if you were expecting a... Uh, speaker who is going to uh, have you leave here with a good, warm, fuzzy feeling, uh, you got the wrong cookie because uh, things are not well in Washington, D.C. Your country is in deep trouble. And I'm going to talk to you about that uh, here in, uh, in a few minutes. 
Uh, then I'm gonna then I'm gonna try to leave you on a little bit higher note, and uh, and then I I'll take questions. <clears throat> when I th this seat, by the way, I'm the 28th U.S. senator, but I'm the 11th senator to hold this seat. This is the Shoup seat. For those of you who know your Idaho history, you'll know that uh, Shoup was our last territorial governor, our first state governor, and our first United States senator for this seat. And I'm the 11th. Jim McClure was the ninth person to hold this seat. And the reason why there's, there's a, f a smaller number that held this seat is in the middle of this was William Bora. And Bora held this seat for about 34 years or, or thereabouts. In the United States Senate, which is a uh, institution that's steeped in tradition and history and what have you, we had that little incident when the British came in and burned the Capitol down in 1814, and they got all the furniture and what have you, so they started making new, new furniture, and they made all new, new furniture. And since then, they've added desks to where we're up to 100 desks now, obviously. But um, they've, they've replicated the original desk. Their, their current ones are slightly different. But uh, when you go there, depending upon your seniority and depending upon your ability to do these things, you can kind of choose the, your desk if somebody doesn't already have it. And what, this may sound kind of sophomoreish, but it's a fact. For many, many years, the senators, you know, uh, I guess they sat around in their togas and didn't have a lot to do, so they would scratch their names in the bottom of the drawer. And the drawers have now become uh, historical documents so that they, they, have, they, put a glass, they put a glass over the top of the people who have endorsed uh, uh, the drawer. And then you're expected to do that in your desk. And they, you, you go in after, after hours, and they, they have a historian comes and takes the glass out. They give you an instrument now to, car, to carve your name with and, uh, and what have you. But anyway, <clears throat> this, uh, the, the purpose of this story is uh, I actually have William Bora's desk. And uh, it says Bora is scratched in the upper left-hand corner. And so I scratched uh, Bora-Idaho, and I scratched after it Rish-Idaho. And uh, there's about... Uh, there's about 15 other names in the desk. Uh, one of them was a, a fellow by the name of Thomas who served in both seats. He was elected to both of the Idaho seats. He served as the United States Senator from Idaho. And also uh, Barry Goldwater had the seat. And I think one of the Tafts had the seat. Uh, but anyway, it's an interesting... If you come to Washington, D.C., I'd like to show you that. But I'm, unfortunately, the, the only time you can go on the floor is late at night. But I've, I've been able to take a few people in and show it. It's, it's kind of an interesting uh, sideline. Well, let me tell you that um, as bad as you think things are in Washington, D.C., they are substantially worse than what you think that they are. And um, that, uh, I, I don't say that facetiously, I, I say that uh, as an actual case. I went to Washington, D.C. believing that the country had changed and that the American people now wanted a much more socialistic form of government, and as a result, they, they, they elected Barack Obama, and they elected uh, both a Democrat House and a Democrat United States Senate. And I was truly expecting, I, I, I sat on the Capitol steps and I watched them inaugurate Barack Obama, and I looked down the mall, there were two million people there, um, and they were very euphoric and what have you. And I went home and I told Vicki, I says, you know, they need to get out the stonemasons because this guy is going to be the fifth head on Mount Rushmore as he pivots our country from a, a free enterprise, free market uh, system of government like we've had 
to a different type of government, much more like Europeans' experience. And I'm assuming most of you are very familiar with the European countries, how they function, how, how their government operates. And, and that's because over the years, for many, many years, Americans kept demanding more and more from their government. Well, politicians are very good at delivering more and more government. And so we now have a government that, uh, a federal government that is very large and uh, affects uh, uh, many, many aspects uh, of our government, or excuse me, of our personal lives. Um, I expected that uh, they would do this, that we would pivot, and of course, a country that goes that route never comes back, fr never comes back to a free enterprise system like we started out as. And um, I have to tell you, that did not happen. Uh, they, they could have done it, and they could have done it to the point where we would never have turned back. And, and by the way, I'm a partisan, I'm a Republican, and so for those of you in the room who are Democrats, I apologize, uh, but not too deeply, because I'm also going to be critical of my own party here in a minute, which you're going to see. Um, and they could have done it if they'd have sat down and done three things, what I call the big three. Had they sat down and, and focused on enacting three things, number one, card check. Everybody here know what card check is? Card check is a law that would have, number one, unionized the entire country, and secondly, would have brought a federal uh, arbitrator in to write the employment contract uh, if the employer-employee couldn't agree. If they, if they would have brought that in, the second uh, prong would have been if they'd have been able to do cap and trade, which, have, which would have dramatically uh, uh, change the way we use uh, energy in this country and the way energy is priced. And the third thing uh, would be a full single-payer health care system. Had they done those three, uh, your children would not know the same country that you grew up in. It would be much more like a European country. European countries are virtually fully unionized, as you know. Uh, the country delivers the, uh, all of the health care um, and on and on and on. That didn't happen, and the American people uh, changed their mind, I guess, or, or whatever, uh, and in the last election, things changed dramatically. And these people that were elected in the last election, they are not like the typical politicians that have been going to D.C. for a lot of years. They're not interested in being measured for a toga that fits or having their portrait painted or what have you. They are people who are just mad as hell and don't want to take it anymore. And... Um, uh, they're, they're flexing their muscle, but the problem is the, the financial situation of this country is such that it is very difficult to do. Now, this is the part of the speech where when I talk, people's eyes start to glaze over a little bit, and you say, eh, you know, I don't know if I want to really hear that. I hope you will listen very carefully to what I'm about to tell you, because every American has a duty to know what I am about to tell you. The United States government will spend, well, well, let me back up just a little bit. Since Barack Obama became president and the Democrats held the House and the Senate, they have increased the size of the United States government 25%. They've in increased the size of government one-fourth. Eh, doesn't mean much really. It's kind of an esoteric thought. But I'm going to put this in dollars and cents now. The United States government over the last couple of years, and what they're trying to do this year, is spend $3.8 trillion. Now that doesn't mean anything to you. It can't mean anything to you because your minds cannot conceive 
$3.8 trillion. First of all, $3.8 trillion doesn't exist. There is no money that represents the $3.8 trillion, which I'll illustrate in a minute. But $3.8 trillion is a lot of money. If you say it's $7 million a minute, 24-7, eh, it starts to become a little bit clearer, but still not much because it's got to relate to something. And it's that relationship that I'm going to talk about here in a minute that, that will hopefully bring this, uh, bring this around to you. They, the federal government doesn't have $3.8 trillion. It will not take in $3.8 trillion. It will only take in $2.2 trillion. So a, li a, a little bit of math will tell you, gosh, can that be? I mean, if you're going to spend 3.8 and going to take in 2.2, you're 40 cents short out of every dollar. That can't be. Oh, yes, it can be. As, w as I'm standing here talking, the federal government is spending $7 million every minute, but it doesn't have $7 million. It is borrowing $2.8 million every minute as I stand here. Barack Obama has created a budget that over the last two years has added to the national debt one point, a little over a half, one and a half trillion dollars each year. A trillion and a half the first year I was there, a trillion and a half the second year I was there. We're on track for a trillion and a half this year. And by the time he finishes, he will have, he will have added six trillion dollars to the national debt. That is really, really important. Now, the unfortunate part of all this is, is that nobody seems to care. You know, all of us grew up with deficit spending. You know, how many times in your lifetime has the federal government not spent more than it, than it took in? Bill Clinton did four years. Four years during his eight years, we had a green line above the line that came in. So, eh, so what? <clears throat> the, the deficit that we're spending now when you compare it to the deficits that, it took, that have taken place over the years is staggering. And it is taking us to a place that is going to cause this government a tremendous amount of pain. And it's going to cause the American people a lot of pain. Now, you've all heard these entertaining stories. Well, you know, if you take the dollar bills and stack them, they go to the moon and back, or they go around the world. Or, you know, those are all very entertaining. Everybody goes, ooh, ah, gosh, it's a lot of money. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use some of those analogies right now, but not to entertain you, uh, but, but to kind of show um, what this means. You've already heard me say that they're borrowing 40 cents uh, out of every dollar. Where, how is this done? Okay, how is this accomplished? I decided that I would kind of dig into this because you know, the, the thing that has struck, I've been in public service all my adult life. And people says, anything surprise you in Washington, D.C., Jim? And I say, you know, very little, except how cavalier they are about money and how this ship is sinking, but people are just rearranging the deck chairs. If you talk to somebody about this in the, in the, that's serving in the Senate or the, uh, or the House, not all of them, but a lot of them look, just look at you with a blank look. You know, you ask them, how are you going to pay this back? And they, they don't, they, they're, they're not even interested in a discussion about how they're going to pay this. What do you mean pay this back? Government never pays back money. 
We never pay back money. We just borrow money. So I decided I was going to go take a look at this, and this is going to put this in perspective for you, I think. And that is this. I said, well, how do, I always heard, well, the way the government operates is they print money. No, they don't. The government doesn't print money. They borrow money. And, and it is real. It is, it is an honest-to-goodness borrowing. So I said, how does this work? Well, the Treasury Department borrows money. So I said, well, I'll go to, I'll go to the Treasury Department. They said, fine. You want, who you want is you want the Bureau of Public Debt. Okay, where are they? Well, they're not in the Treasury Building, which is adjacent to the White House. They're in a building down on 9th and 8th Street, which is about, uh, about five blocks from where I live. And so I called them. They said, oh, we'd love to have you come down. We never get senators come down here. You know? And I said, well, great. I want to come down. So I went in there. They got a nice little dog and pony show that they, that they put on for you first. And, and very open. Happy to answer any questions you got. There's no, unlike a lot of the bureaucracies that stumble around or what have you, these guys are straight up, except policy. They will not talk policy with you. Uh, they will not talk about where the money's going or how it's, going, how it's being spent or how we're going to. They said, Senator, our job is this. You know that families and businesses at the end, at, have to pay their bills every month. And so you have to have enough money in your checkbook to pay your bills. Well, the federal government pays their bills every night, not every month or every week, every night. And they have to have enough money in the checkbook to pay their bills. And so fellow said to me, Tim Geithner tells me, not Tim, one of his assistants, tells me how much money they need in the checkbook for that night, I go get it, okay? So I said, well, well how, uh, and by the way, this place is, is completely secure. You can't go in there, and the media can't go in there, and it's really unfortunate because America should be able to see what's going on in this building. This goes on every single day. So I went in there, and we sat down, and I said, well, how often do you do this? They said, well, we do it every day, Senator. I said, how long have you been doing this every day? And they said, well, since the, uh, before the stimulus package passed, we did it once a week. Now we're down to every day, and they're moving to, to uh, multiple times a day. When I was there, they did it three times that day. So I went in, and they gave me the briefing on what they do and how they do it. And, uh, and so I said, well, what are you doing here? And they said, well, at 11 o'clock, when the clock hits 11 o'clock, we, we are going to ask for bids for $57 billion. We need $57 billion. And uh, what they're bidding is they bid interest rates. And it goes on for a half an hour. At the end of the half an hour, it closes. And at that moment, the money has to transfer. Uh, I'll get into that in, in, in a minute. So we, we talked for a bit, and I had a lot of questions about how they did it and why they did it and, and what have you. So then I went into a room that was about half this size, and they had two tables, and they had uh, people on each side of the table with computers. But it's all computerized. The people don't have anything to do with this. They've already put out how much money they need. Uh, and then the, the bidding was starting. It was going kind of slow. I said, well, you know, why? It doesn't look like you, because they told me they had a lot of bidders. And they said, well, Senator, they don't, the, the bidding doesn't start really until you get right down to the end, because if war breaks out somewhere or something, it has a tremendous effect on, on the interest rate. So as we, got, as we got down to the end, the bidding, about 10 minutes ago, the bidding picked up very quickly. And, and you, we could see it, but it's not, a, it's, it's not a, uh, an auction-type bid. It's a sealed bid. People are bidding. They'll say, we will loan you $10 billion, and you pay us this amount of interest. And, and they start accumulating. And so in any event, about seven minutes out, the loudspeakers came out and said, we have cover. The loudspeaker went off. Didn't mean anything to me. Um, and so then we, they were right. As we got close to the half hour, 
They had all these bids come in. I mean, it was flooded the Bank of Scotland and, and this place and that place. And there's about 20 large bond dealers in America. They were all bidding. And they had their, they, they, uh, clo everything is on by the second, by the hundredths of a second, by the clock. When it hit 11.30, the clock quit. They had CNBC up there, and within 30 seconds, the banner across CNBC said, the United States government has just issued uh, four-week bonds and 52-week uh, bonds, and this is the interest rate. The banner went across. We went back in the other room. I said, I got a lot of questions. And so we sat down, and I said, well, uh, what, what did you mean when you, we got cover? And they said, well, that, at that point, we had enough money bid that they were going to give us the $57 billion that we needed. And I said, well, you know, does, uh, what happens if you don't get cover? And they all kind of laughed. They said, well, that can't happen. I said, what do you mean that can't happen? And they said, Senator, you saw how that went out over CNBC. This is all computerized. It, it, immediately, we have to give the information to the public. But if we didn't get cover, within a minute, every financial market in the world would freeze and collapse if the United States government couldn't get the money that it needed to operate. And I said, boy, that's frightening. I said, have you ever come close? And they said, once. And they said, back in, the, in 2008, when, they had, when, when all the turmoil was going on, they came within 30 seconds of it. But anyway, that is all the bad news. The good news, the good news is this. We are fully in control of this auction. All, we write all the rules. And the rules are such that nobody can dominate the auction. Nobody can get more than, uh, own more than 35%. They have this complicated formula that when you bid, you, uh, uh, even if you don't get it, uh, you agree to take so much of the debt at the lowest percent that was bid. And th the rules are all our favor. And the good news is they loaned us money at 0.3%. What kind of doofuses are loaning this United States government money at 0.3%? Well, it was hundreds of, of people. About a fourth of it went to the Chinese. About a fourth of it went to other governments. Governments like uh, Ireland that are loaning us money for short term when they don't have any money. Uh, and then to a lot of private institutions. But that's how frightening this was, uh, that, that uh, uh, if they didn't get cover, what, what would happen? But the second thing that impressed me was the, the fact that they have to do this every single day in order to, to uh, pay their bills. And, and so I wanted to know how much of this was real debt because they were borrowing for a lot of different reasons. But they said, we well, have to take it on a weekly basis. This week, we're auctioning off $300 billion, but $270 billion of it is what I call Ponzi money. $270 billion of it was money to pay back people that we borrowed from a year ago or so whose notes were coming due that day, and we had to pay them back. So at the end of the week, we borrowed $300 billion, but we we're only $30 billion deeper in debt. So that tells you the precarious position of this government. Let me give you, let me tell you something else. The 2.2 trillion that's coming in, if you took that 2.2 trillion and you paid only the interest on the national debt, Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, you would be out of money. You couldn't defend this country. You couldn't operate any other operation of uh, federal government. That, that's, that is the difficult position this country's in. So your question to me would be, if I were sitting out there saying, well, Senator, this, this can't be. Somebody's got to have a plan to get us out of this. This, this can't go on. And my answer to you is, this country is in serious trouble because there is no plan 
to get out of what, we're, what we've got going on. Let me tell you, and this is where I'm going to criticize my party a little bit. Let me tell you how bad it is. We, the federal government operates from October 1st to September the 30th. As you know, the state runs from July 1 to, to June 30th. Federal government, October 1 to September 30th. They used to do budgets, then pass appropriation bills, and then spend the money. We're not doing it anymore because we're so divided and so polarized, they can't pass a budget anymore. So they just kind of keep the government going with what's called a continuing resolution. Well, the Democrats, when they left in December, made a real mistake. They had passed continuing resolutions. When they got to December, they said, you know, the government's going to shut down. We've got to pass another continuing resolution. If you don't do a continuing resolution, there's no appropriation. The government shuts down. So they did one for March 4th today. And so the Republicans come in on January the 1st, and they say, all right, uh, we're, we're not going to take this anymore. We want some cuts. Well, we fought back and forth and round and round, and the Tea Partiers got involved, and they said they want cuts. And they wanted to cut $100 billion out of, out of uh, Obama's budget. And so the fight went on and on and on, and they finally settled on a CR for two weeks because that's all everybody could agree to. So on Wednesday, we had a vote on the Senate floor to continue the federal government from March 4th for two weeks until March the 18th. I didn't vote for it. Senator Crapo didn't vote for it. Our two colleagues from Utah, Senator Hatch and, and Lee, didn't vote for it. And Senator Rand, uh, Rand Paul from uh, uh, Kentucky didn't vote for it. I'm going to tell you why I didn't vote for it. They, I haven't voted for any of the appropriation bills since I've been there. There is no money. And I am not going to spend any more money until there is this plan to get us out of the mess that we're in. And nobody's even close to that. My Republican friends, were want, the, the leadership was mad at me because I wouldn't vote for a continuing resolution. And I said, look, I'm not going to vote for it. You guys aren't even close. You know, we've got to do better. And they said, Jim, look, this is a great and a glorious victory for us. We have actually gotten the Democrats to vote for a cut. Now, do you know what they got them to vote for a cut for two weeks? You know how much cut they got them to vote for? Four billion dollars in two weeks. Remember, we're going in debt five billion dollars a day, and they got a cut of four billion dollars. I said, you guys are nuts. You're sitting here declaring victory by getting them to cut four billion dollars. I got a I got a text on the way back yesterday, and he said we met with the president, and they. The president wants us to now finish out the CR for the year, and he's willing to allow another $6 billion in cuts for the year. I mean, you know, I got to tell you, I'm an outlier on this. Uh, if, you were, if you had somebody from here from D.C., they would be telling you, oh, everything's going to be just fine. Look, I'm just a poor country boy from Idaho, but I'm telling you, it is not going to be fine. Think of the federal budget like this. And this is one of those stories that I'm telling you that it's not for entertainment purposes. But if you laid out on the table here $38 bills, and each of those dollar bills represented $100 billion, that would be the federal budget, $3.8 trillion. Now you take them and divide them into two, pile, into two groups, 22 piles and 16 piles. The 22 piles is the $2.2 trillion that we're going to, actually going to get. The, one, the 16 piles is uh, uh, the $1.6 trillion that we're borrowing. Let me tell you what we're fighting about and all this bloodletting and finger pointing. And you Republicans, do you know what you're doing? You're closing down the poison control centers in America. You're doing this and you're doing that. All, and, and I mean, it is painful. It is painful. 
If we Republicans win, and we win everything we want that the Tea Partiers wanted, which was to take $100 billion off of the table, you'd still have the 22 piles, and you'd reduce that we have coming in, and the 16 piles that we don't have coming in, you'd pick up one of them. And there'd be 15 piles, 1.5 trillion, that we still have to borrow. Anybody, can anybody tell me this is gonna be all right? Can anybody give me a scenario? And I've talked to the smartest people I know back there, the economists and everything else, and, and a lot of people just give you a blank look. Other people will, will say, yeah, I guess it's a serious problem, but there is no sense of urgency. There is nobody telling the story that I'm telling you. They, uh, they wanted me to go on Fox. They call, did Fox call you? They wanted me to go on Fox on Sunday morning and tell this story. And I said, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. I, uh, perhaps at some time in the future. But this thing has got to change. So now you see all the big smiles in the room. Everybody's so happy. Well, I, pray, I painted a pretty dire uh, picture of our country's uh, finances. And it is dire. It is really serious. But, you know, the, the reason I'm involved in this is, uh, uh, you know, th th this is a, I believe in American exceptionalism. I really do. This might even be too big for American exceptionalism. But we've been through tough times before. You know, everybody says, well, this is the worst, darkest, you know, if you look at these numbers, it's darkest ever for America. I said, well, you know what? Think about when President Lincoln got up in the morning. He had, a, he had an economy that was a lot worse than this economy. And he had states fighting with each other and Americans killing Americans. I mean, those had to be some pretty tough times. We went through World War I, World War II. We went through, the, uh, we went through uh, a, a terrible depression. We are Americans. We can do this. We can get ourselves out of this. But I'm telling you, we have got to roll up our sleeves and acknowledge that we got a drinking problem and we have got to do something about this. Now, if we owe this, you know, we all live pretty well. We all live pretty comfortably. But we owe this to the next generations of Americans that are coming up. Our parents, our parents handed this to us. Our grandparents handed this to us. We have the obligation to do something about this. And, you know... One of the things that keeps me going is these kinds of things. Let me read you a letter that I got, uh, not last year, I think it was the year before last. Dear Senator Risch, my name is Zoe Barnhart. I live in Mackey, Idaho, and I am nine years old. I am a junior member of the American Legion Auxiliary, uh, Joe Nowaki, Unit 16 in Mackey, Idaho. The National American Legion Auxiliary president said, poppies provide hope for veterans, honoring our promise every day. Every May, our unit supports the poppy program. They donated money, uh, goes to help our veterans. I'm sending you a poppy to wear this month. Any donations you can, uh, can be sent to me, I will make sure they go to help our veterans. Your friend, Zoe Barnard. Zoe, I wore this all that month. God bless you for what you're doing. We're going to save America for you. Zoe, stand up and be recognized. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing. This young lady understands her responsibility, and it's important that every one of us understand our responsibility to the next generations. Tell everybody you know about this, because this is a serious problem. God bless you. Thank you for having me here, and I guess I'm going to take a few questions. Is that right? And, and by the way, you know, I, you, you've heard me talk just about money. I have to tell you, that is sucking the oxygen out of everything in Washington, D.C. right now. When I went there, there were three issues that everybody was talking about. The war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, and energy. 
Those issues are on the back burner. All people are talking about today is in Washington, D.C., is the financial situation that we have gotten ourselves in. And we did this to ourselves. This didn't just happen. And it wasn't Democrats that did this. It wasn't just Democrats that did this. Republicans were complacent, uh, were, were participant in this uh, just as much. So instead of looking backward for blame, we all need to be looking forward to how we're going to get out of this because this is an American problem. It isn't a Republican problem or a Democrat problem, but we all need to, uh, to roll up our sleeves on this. I'll take, I'll take questions on wolves or on grizzly bears or on... Uh, I'm on the foreign relations... <laughs> Thank you. I'm on foreign relations, and I'm sure you're as fascinated by what's going on in the Middle East as I am, and certainly what I do on foreign relations, and we haven't had a senator sit on foreign relations for the last 30 years, so I, I took that committee, because what happens in those countries affects us here in America, and affects us in Idaho Falls, just as much as it does people in New York City and in Los Angeles. So with that, Tim? Let's hear some questions. Senator, thank you. Uh, more than a few questions for you. I've got a whole handful here, and I think we could spend the rest of the afternoon. You have prompted many questions, and there were many questions in people's minds as they came today. And uh, your mention of the fact that you are uh, seated on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, really prompts this first question. Uh, which is one of those things in addition to our deficits that I think people are genuinely worried about. And that is, should the U.S. take military action to support and defend the people of Libya against Muammar Gaddafi? That's a great question. Um, not right now. First of all, we got two, we, we got two major uh, things going on right now. And if you'd asked me this uh, Monday, I'd have been a lot softer on this issue than I am. But in the meantime, Secretary Gates has, has, has uh, uh, brought, this, brought this to the forefront uh, much clearer than we politicians uh, can by ourselves. You know, Gaddafi needs to go. Uh, and the President of the United States has said so. Uh, I support the President of the United States. He has some difficult choices to make. And they are difficult choices and they're judgment calls and that's all they are. He suggested at the outset, perhaps uh, uh, we create a no-fly zone over Libya. Now, at the outset, that sounds like a really, really good idea because Gaddafi has a military. Now, it's kind of a ragtag outfit. Uh, they're flying MiG airplanes, but they've got airplanes. They've got some really old helicopters, but they have helicopters. And he, he intentionally kept the military weak to a degree so they couldn't overthrow him. But he kept it enough alive that he could use it against his citizens, and he is doing that right now. You have in Libya a, uh, an insurrection, and in what it is made up of, of Libyan citizens who are very poor uh, and uh, who want things different than what they are, but they're joined by people who have abandoned the military and brought their equipment with them, so you actually have a modest civil war going on. So, shouldn't we help? those people that are trying to overthrow Gaddafi. Yeah, we should, but we gotta be really careful in a, couple of, in, in a number of different respects. The first one is, creating a no-fly zone is much more complicated than just saying, okay, we're gonna have a no-fly zone, we'll put our pilots over there, nobody takes off, if you do, we'll shoot them down. Secretary Gates pointed out, very wise, and, and by the way, John McCain is a good friend of mine, and he differs with me on this. He, he, he is 
firm on wanting to see a no-fly zone. But Secretary Gates says, well, now, wait a minute. You know, if you say we're going to do a no-fly zone, I'm in charge of that, okay? I'm, I'm uh, Secretary of Defense. I, I'm in charge of that. The first thing you're ordering me to do if we have a no-fly zone is I have to attack Libya because I have to take out every ground-based air defense system that they have, their radar, their, their rockets, their, everything they've got. I am not going to send American pilots over there to fly when they have an air defense system. First of all, we don't have to. We're America. In, in 48 hours, I can take all that stuff out, just like we did in Iraq, when our pilots can fly over there uh, with ease. Having said that, remember, you are now sending America to attack another Middle Eastern Islamic country that they're kind of sick and tired of us attacking over there. So be careful about that. Secondly, this is not cheap. You know, you guys are cutting me back on my budget, which we are, the Republicans even, have rolled back on, uh, on national defense. And guys, I can't do what you're asking me to do in Afghanistan and mop up in Iraq and now open a third front. I just can't do that without substantially more money. So you have that. In addition to that, just think about what's happened, first in Tunisia, then in Egypt, and, and then in, uh, and now in, uh, uh, in Libya. When's the last time you saw a riot somewhere in the world where people weren't burning the President of the United States in effigy and saying, down with America, what have you? This has got nothing to do with us. And the last thing we want to do is make it about us. That is not a good deal. The people that are doing this are not people like some of the other countries where, where this has happened. The, these people are not religious zealots. They are not the Sunnis uh, fighting the Shiites over religious fanaticism and, and fighting Christians over religi religious fanaticism. This is internal uh, uh, matters within their own countries, all in Tunisia, in Egypt, and now in Libya. And it's not over religion. It is not over America. It's over a loaf of bread. That's what it's over. So should we do military intervention? Not right now. That's my view. Thank you. Great question. Senator, um, I'm told to talk more closely to this microphone, and obviously that works. Um, could I understand then that your, your answer is that the administration at the moment is executing a policy with which you agree with respect to Libya? Clearly. A and the other thing that I think is the heart of their policy right now, which I really agree with, is they have taken no options off the table. Uh, the uh, no-fly zone is not off the table, it's on the table. All options are on the table. But let's, uh, let's be cautious. Well, now, uh, retreating to where you have been with many of your remarks this morning, uh, people are genuinely concerned. And I think uh, your message is very direct. Uh, but I think people get it, Senator. And this audience clearly gets it. And they would like you to respond to this question. Recognizing that entitlements represent the principal part of the federal budget, how would you propose to deal with them as a part of deficit reduction? That's a great question, and, and, and it really strikes to the heart of what we're talking about here. As, as I said earlier, this didn't just happen. I mean, this wasn't something that, was, uh, that fell out of the sky. We did this to ourselves. 
And we did it primarily with entitlement systems because politicians love to vote for increased benefits uh, for uh, their constituents. And they bring everybody else along with gotcha politics. I've, since I've been there, I've seen it, and I've seen it on both sides. We're going to throw a bill out here. Democrats did it to us. They threw a bill out and said, well, there's no cost of living for the uh, Social Security people this year. And we're getting a lot of calls on that. Social Security people, recipients, can understand why there's no cost of living. Well, there's no cost of living because there's a formula by which you get a cost of living if, indeed, the cost of living goes up. Well, the cost of living hasn't gone up, so there's no cost of living. And, and there's a lot of uh, uh, recipients who are unhappy about that. And so the Democrats said, we're going to send everybody $250. All right, so now you're standing there on the floor of the Senate, and you're good, you have the choice of voting for $250 uh, for all of your Social Security recipients are saying, no, we're not going to do that for them. Well, the politicians do it, and they've done it year after year after year, and that has gotten us into the mess we're in with entitlements. Start with Social Security. Believe it or not, Social Security is actually fairly easy to fix. And not only that, it isn't the one that's contributing to the problem. Uh, you can fix Social Security, and I predict we probably will. But we need leadership from the President of the United States on this. And I, you know, I'm kind of the President on some stuff, but I'm very critical of him on this. We have given him every opportunity to lead on this. And nobody, but nobody, is going to fix this without leadership from the President of the United States, and he absolutely refuses to engage on this. He put together a commission, a President's Commission, Mike Crapo was on it, that came up with some great suggestions. What have you heard about that? I mean, he took that thing and put it on the shelf. He won't even acknowledge it in public. I'm very critical of him on that. We need uh, presidential leadership, but we can fix Social Security very simply. Number one. You raise the, the age of retirement by some months, and uh, you means test so that you don't get Social Security if you don't need it. Now you say, oh boy, that's going to be really unpopular. Not really, because it won't be done for anybody who's already receiving benefits or anyone who's even close to retirement age. You can reach all the way back to 50 and probably even go further back than that and put these things in place and voila you have a balanced Social Security uh, system, which will be slightly painful, but the politicians can probably swallow that and even get reelected on it. Because you've saved Social Security, you've actually done, kept a, a good program in place that people really rely on and really need. Okay, Senator, that was easy. What about Medicare? That's a real problem. And I can't stand here and give you an answer for that, other than to tell you that Medicare has got to be revised. There is no question that Medicare has got to be revised. It is the largest uh, difficulty as far as the increase that the federal government is putting out every year. Um, it's going to be very partisan if I start talking about the, uh, the Health Care Act that was passed with all Democrats and no Republicans voting for it last year, and so I probably ought to stay away from that. After the Supreme Court declares it unconstitutional, I think we can go back to the table and uh, probably have some meaningful discussions as to how to actually do that. You know, in the last presidential campaign, everybody was talking about health care reform. But it turns out that that was only the title of the song. The sheet music was different. The health care reform the Democrats were talking about is 
they wanted more coverage. 87% of Americans were covered by health insurance at, at the time Obama took office. And his idea of, of health care reform was to move that needle to more. The Republicans, on the other hand, were saying, well, you know, we're focused on how do we reduce the cost of health care in America, therefore reducing the cost of insurance in America, therefore reducing the cost on American businesses. It turns out we were singing the same song, but we had two different sheets of music. They won. We lost. We fought over it for about a year and a half. They moved the needle. They moved the needle from 84% of coverage, or excuse me, 87% of coverage to 94% of coverage. They covered another 30 million people at a cost of about $2.5 trillion. Um, to do it, well, you know, now, now I'm going to get into something really partisan, so I will pass. But I don't have an answer for that, other than it's going to take some, uh, some significant work. Somebody eventually is going to stand up and say, you know what, we probably can't afford pay for everybody's health care. Let's move on. Senator, you mentioned uh, the President's uh, Budget Deficit Commission, uh, chaired by our neighbor Alan Simpson and by Erskine Bowles from North Carolina. Senator Craper, Crapo served on that commission and uh, joined in the recommendations and agreed to support them. Uh, someone in the audience here is interested in what aspects of that Budget Deficit Commission report would you support? Well, first of all, Mike Crapo, the vote was this. Every senator voted for it, including Tom Coburn, who's almost as far on the, on the spectrum to the right as I am, uh, and um, uh, Dick Durbin from Illinois, who's as, about as far on the spectrum as the other ways you can get. Both of them voted for it. All senators voted for it. No House members voted for it. All the presidential appointees voted for it except one. They needed 14 out of the 18 to send it to the Senate for a vote. They only got 11, but, but that was pretty substantial. Back to the specific question of what was in there that I could support and what I couldn't. Well, Mike Crapo voted for it knowing, Mike and I had long conversations about this, Mike voted for it knowing it wouldn't be accepted in its exact form. But there were some really good things in there, such as Social Security that I just talked about, the other was that Mike's really interested in is seeing a simplification of the, uh, uh, of the uh, tax reform in America. And what they did with tax reform, and this is an oversimplification, but it abolished every deduction. So you wouldn't get, you, you know, you get rid of Schedule A. You know, all deductions are gone. But in return for that, the, uh, the uh, tax rate would drop way down, okay? And I said, Mike, look, uh, that's not going to pass because how many people on the floor of the United States Senate are going to vote to repeal the exemption for home mortgage? How many people are going to vote for the exemption for charitable deductions? And what do you think the charities in America are going to do about lobbying the United States Congress when they suggest getting rid of that? And he said, you know, he said, I knew that the thing would not pass in the form it was in, but he said, you know, we did, we did uh, this is what we did. We, ha we put a price on every single one of those major deductions so that you could accept it in a modified form. That is, you had simplification and you had this reduction in the rates. But if you said, we're still going to let people deduct their home mortgage, the rates would bump slightly and the same way on charitable deductions. So in that, re in that respect, they could do the, uh, they could do the uh, uh, tax reform 
which Mike strongly supports. And uh, personally, uh, I'm almost uh, as far as Mike is, but I think, I think we could do that. Um, there's some other things in there that are, that are going to be painful, but, uh, it, but it's got to be bipartisan. No one party could do it because it would be a suicide mission in the next election. They'd just make hamburger out of you on the ads that they'd make. So, uh, great question. And, uh, and you're going to see some of those things. I understand what you're saying is that, that both parties have got to roll up their sleeves if we're going to get this done. Uh, it, it's got to be bipartisan or it will not yeah, get done. Yeah. Uh, because the answer is that you can't sell this or can't sell that because of the politics of it uh, is so often the answer uh, when we ask political figures and leaders those questions. But don't you believe that rolling up sleeves means that political leaders have to, in fact, lead on these issues rather than simply following opinions that oftentimes are not well informed? Uh, you know, I agree with that on something of this magnitude finishing with what I started with, the President of the United States truly has to lead on this. And I, you know, I, I give him credit whenever I can. I have to tell you, I've been sadly, just, I sat and listened to his State of the Union, and I, you know, I've delivered messages uh, as CEO before, and, and I was stunned. And of course, I'd, I'd already come to the realization of how bad a financial trouble that we're in, but I, I gotta tell you, I was stunned sitting there listening to that. I mean, it, it took us nowhere. And I, it, it, he has the bully pulpit. He's the one that, uh, that has to lead on it. And uh, it's unfortunate, but he's not. Lots of people here, as you could be sure, are very concerned about uh, operations at the INL. Right. And uh, more recently about funding. Administration's budget uh, is something that has brought that concern very much. Idaho, and uh, the questions really all have to do with uh, what about that, Senator, and what are you doing to fix it? Well, um, the message I just delivered to you about the condition of the United States uh, is one that, uh, that has to cause concern for anyone uh, who uh, is doing business with the United States, and of course that, that includes the INL. Um, as far as uh, where it winds up, I can't tell you. I can tell you this. I have been a strong, strong advocate in Washington for uh, nuclear power. And we, we just are not getting the enthusiasm we should be getting. The country is changing. We are moving forward. We're only getting 20% of our electricity in America from uh, nuclear power. The nuclear renaissance is taking place, but it is taking place very slow. Every speech I give uh, when I'm talking about energy, I talk about uh, how we in Idaho produced the very first uh, civilian nuclear energy uh, in the world. Uh, we are, are, are prepared and very much willing to help and, uh, and be the centerpiece of moving nuclear energy forward. In that respect, and, and believe me, nuclear will be part of the energy solution for America in the future. Uh, notwithstanding the fact that, the, that presently the, the Department of Energy is not focused on that. They're, they're focused on wind and they're focused uh, on solar. And I voted against the energy bill that uh, was written in, in the spring of 2009 in the committee. It never got to the floor, so never had an opportunity to vote against it there. They were spending billions and billions and billions of dollars on wind and on solar. I 
fully understand wind and solar are, are very nice, they're clean, they make people feel good, but they will not deliver the base load that America needs to move us forward with our economy. And so in that regard, uh, I'm going to continue to push for that. Uh, I know uh, others are going to continue to push for that. And we know that as the government spends money, they're certainly going to spend money on energy, and it ought to be spent right here. Senator, uh, you have uh, very rightfully gained a reputation as being a very sensitive advocate for conservation and the values of uh, conserving some of our very most precious areas in Idaho. Uh, you, as governor, uh, helped uh, write a roadless uh, area bill that was uh, highly uh, touted and, and acclaimed by both conservationists and uh, users of our wilderness and our roadless areas. And uh, therefore, there is a question here because a lot of this audience and eastern Idaho has been very interested in Congressman Simpson's White Clouds bill. So this question really is, what is it specifically about the White Cloud Wilderness legislation that he has introduced that prevents you from supporting it? I can give a very direct answer to that. First of all, I really admire Congressman Simpson for the work he's done on this. Um, th this, is, this is work that needs to be done. Uh, he's correctly identified some of the, some of the uh, pristine uh, uh, lands in, in Idaho that d need and deserve protection. Um, and, and really the fight isn't over that. The fight is over the fringe grounds. And specifically, uh, I uh, uh, listened very carefully to the people who came and testified on the bill. And when the testimony was over, I concluded that I couldn't support the bill simply because I didn't believe the collaborative process was done. Um, when you're done with collaborative process, you have people on board. I can tell you there are, there, there are large numbers of recreation users of public lands that do not support the CEDRA bill. And I want to support the CEDRA bill. I want to see the CEDRA bill pass. And I told Mike this, and, and he and I have, uh, have discussed this uh, at some length, and uh, it needs more collaboration. It's not done. The, the, the cake is not fully baked yet, and that's why I can't support it at this point. And by the way, do not take any of this as a criticism of Congressman Simpson. I admire what he's done. I support what he's done. I have to tell you, it is a, it is a difficult job what he's trying to do about bringing the groups together. Nobody knows that better than I do. This cedar is only, how many, how many acres is 300,000 plus? When I did roadless, it was 9.2 million acres. And it was very diverse ground. And uh, when I was done, I had everybody except the Wilderness Society, the Greater uh, Yellowstone Coalition, and I think one other radical conservation group who sued and lost uh, after it was brought, on, uh, brought in place. So I understand how difficult the collaborative process is. It is very, very difficult, and I admire what Congressman Simpson's doing. Two more questions. We're very, very close to uh, the end of time here, Senator. But a number of people asked questions related to the what seems like very partisan atmosphere in our politics, Great. the very incivil uh, attitude that, that uh, has seemed to have taken over our media and our politics, and they ask what you are doing to uh, try to, to uh, cross over 
some of those lines and reintroduce the spirit, for example, of Jim McClure to uh, the politics, not only of Idaho, but of this nation? That's a great question. You know, first of all, before I went to the United States Senate, I heard, you know, this place is a really clubby place. You know, they all put on their togas and sit around and talk and enjoy each other's company and, and they're all chummy and they all get along and they're all personal friends and what have you. Let me tell you something about that rumor. It is absolutely true. Um, yesterday, at about this time, I was standing on the floor of the United States Senate, partnered with Diane Feinstein on an amendment to a bill that we have. Now, if you talk about political philosophy, there are no two people in the Senate that can get farther apart than Dianne Feinstein and I. But we were joined together on, an, on a particular amendment uh, to the uh, patent reform bill and, and uh, worked together on it. Now, having said that, on overall philosophical issues, we are deeply, deeply, deeply divided. And I go out and have dinner uh, uh, once a week or so in a, in a setting like this. Vicki and I will be sitting there with two, two Democrat, uh, Democrat couple. We go out on our own. We go out on, on arranged dinners. And we get along. We talk. Generally speaking, we don't talk about those deep philosophical divides because they're, you, it's almost impossible to bring them together. Let me, this is the question I put to media when they asked me that. Why would you think, why would you think that the politicians wouldn't be polarized? America is deeply polarized. If you take the working people in America, they are made up of two groups. We will call one group the blue group, and we'll call the other group the red group. It's almost even out of all the working people. The red group pay taxes. The blue group pay no taxes. So if you make average income or above, you're paying taxes. If you, if you and, and well, I'll get into that. If you make average or less, you are paying no taxes. So the red group is supporting all aspects of the federal government. The blue group is not contributing any federal income tax of any kind to the operations of the federal government. Now, if that were the end of it, we maybe wouldn't be so polarized. But in addition to that, the blue group not only doesn't pay taxes, they have subsidies that flow from the red group. They have wealth transfer from the red group. That is called, for instance, um, the, the uh, earned income credit. So you not only don't pay taxes, you get a benefit, you get cash for working. But on top of that, they also get food stamps, they get subsidized housing, they get subsidized medical care, they get subsidized education. And so you have this blue group out here, and you have the red group out here. What makes you think anybody in the blue group would vote for somebody from the red group to go represent them in Washington, D.C.? And what makes you think anybody from the red group would vote for somebody from the blue group to represent them in Washington, D.C.? This is about money. It, it is about how America has evolved over the years that we constructed a uh, federal income tax structure to operate the country. Yes, it's polarized. But if you step back and think about it, why wouldn't it be polarized? I, I mean, the two groups are almost exactly the same size. It is all, I think it's 49-51, and I forgot which way, as to who pays taxes and who doesn't pay taxes. Why would you think? that the country wouldn't be polarized. That goes right to the politicians. Because if you are a politician running out of one group, you're going, you're going to uh, cater to that group, you're going to throw out red meat, you're going to 
uh, uh, do the kinds of things that you do to get elected, and same thing from the other group. And there is nobody holy on this. There's nobody that has a monopoly on this. There's no good and there's no bad. It's just the way it is. Senator, it that's not a, that's not an answer you want yeah, to hear. Yeah, no, it's no, it's it's not. It, it, <laughs> I must agree with you. It is not an answer the person who asked that question wants to hear because the question really was, what are you doing about that? Assuming it's not good to have what you've just described, what are you doing to resolve it? But I'm it, not going to leave you with that question. Okay. I'm going to Give leave me you something with, I can I'm put going a to smile leave you with a tougher face. question <laughs> because this is the last question yeah, that this we're going why to I get be able to address box, today. Right? I think this one, Senator, was probably addressed to you by Zoe, the young lady you brought along and have as used as such a wonderful example of an early citizen's involvement in the political process. She asks, for someone interested in starting in politics, where is the best place to start? Wherever you can. Um, you know, the if, if a person's going to do what I have been so fortunate to do, and not by myself, but with the help of a lot of the people here in this room, and certainly with my wife's help, and and, and certainly with a lot of people from Eastern Idaho's help, um, you really need to start at something modest. And uh, there is no substitute for service on a city council, for service in the state legislature, for, for service in a county elected official, if you're going to try to move up in either state government or in federal government. Um, I, I'll tell you, you really, really learn how government works and how it operates, how you can make things happen, how you can bring bring consensus when there's disagreement, because there's always disagreement, there's always acrimony, there's always a deep divisiveness, and and when you when you start at a plant, the you want to find a great place to start is is either on the school board or the uh, or on the planning and zoning commission, the two most thankless jobs in the whole world. But, but they teach you about the kinds of issues that, uh, that you have to deal with at a higher and a higher and a higher level. And they teach you about human nature and they teach you about how you have to, how you have to make things happen. So where would you start? Number one, wherever you can. And, and I've told this, I, I, people come to me frequently and say, well, you know, gee, I'm thinking about running for Congress. And I always tell somebody that was thinking about running for Congress, you know, before you do that, you know, you really ought to spend a term in the state legislature or you ought to spend some time on a city council or somewhere because, believe me, there is there's no substitute for having some of that foundational background. Thank you so much for having me here. I hope I didn't ruin all of your day, but uh, I wouldn't be telling you the truth if I didn't tell you what was on my mind. God bless you. Thank you for this unique opportunity that I have. Thank you, Senator, very much for being here, and thank you very much for your service. And thanks to all of you for your great questions, for being here. We'll look forward to seeing you again soon at the end of the month.